This is the Midwest Academy LeaderCast, a leadership development podcast, episode five. The world breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. It's a quote from Ernest Hemingway, and it introduces our show topic today on resilience. And today I have my good friend, John David Morris, or J.D. to the people who know him, who's a retired 5th Special Forces Group soldier. J.D., thank you for your service, and thanks for being here today. Oh, you're welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. J.D., can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, you got it uh, right. Uh, I grew up as uh, John Morris or uh, maybe Johnny, uh, and that quickly changed when I hit my first SF team in uh, 1992 in, at Fort Campbell. Uh, they had too many Johns, and it just keeps happening in life. So JD is a uh, nickname that has stuck, but again, mostly with the shooting community or the military. Um, going way back, uh, I grew up, and I was born in Southern California, um, changed real quick after a couple years. Mom and I moved back, and I, I grew up uh, through high school and a couple years of college in northern West Virginia in the upper Ohio Valley, the tri-state area. Uh, the tip of West Virginia, uh, Eastern Ohio, and Western PA. Uh, we were a, um, a middle-class rural family. Uh, the men uh, worked in the mills or were farmers or were both. And uh, I had a, gotta say I had a, a good upbringing. Um, but uh, as I went through junior high and into high school, just a little lost. I, I worshipped sports. I followed all the pros in college, and I Really, I was a decent student, but I, I just loved being outside and, and playing sports. And I uh, thought I'd go and play basketball past high school. Uh, I graduated in 1982, so that should tell people that I'm about 56. And uh, I don't go off those numbers, but, uh, you know, I keep track of it. But, hey, I like to, you know, it's a mindset thing as I uh, get older and um, work on longevity. So after high school... I was, and and as we later on asked me about, you know, being more of a follower than a leader, I followed the crowd to West Virginia University, and I don't think I was prepared, yet uh, I spent about two, three years down there, and finally found out college wasn't right uh, right for me. In fact, in 1986, it's kind of funny that um, Top Gun is coming out with a sequel, but I saw the movie that summer, and I'm like, you know what, there's another calling, but I think mainly I wanted to just get a little further away from home. So uh, I went back to uh, where I grew up, across the river into East Liverpool, Ohio, and uh, joined the Army. And in a couple months, in late 86, uh, I was sitting in the wintertime in um, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, saying, what in the heck had I just done? You know, I uh, thought I was going to be flying planes, and uh, but at least I said, well, now I'm going to jump out of them because uh, my... Um, sole request signing up for the Army was that I wanted to be a paratrooper and hopefully end up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, I was a 12B combat engineer, and I did get to go to the Airborne School after that, and I did go to Fort Bragg. Uh, however, I didn't go to the 82nd. I went to the 18th Airborne Corps to a combat engineer unit there, uh, which were, was airborne and um, kind of unique. They uh, did a lot of, at that time, missions in uh, Central America, supporting whatever was going on down there, out of Honduras mostly, and um, they did rough terrain jumping, which was really cool. And it uh, gave me a great insight to, you know, because I thought I knew some stuff about the military. I grew up, you know, um, worshipping the Vietnam veterans and wanting to take care of them and get them to know them in our area. But, you know, when I got to basic training and further into the uh, initial years in the Army, I found out that I really didn't know a lot uh, about the military and how it operated. So being at Fort 
Dave was just, you know, it was amazing as a young paratrooper. So that whole follower thing somehow made a dynamic change. And I, uh, like in basic training, I didn't know that they, I didn't know anything about awards. You know, any like, it's like, hey, just go to basic training, teach me how to shoot. In this case, 12B, landmines, explosives, and send me on my way. I ended up being, um, talk a little bit about myself, which I almost never do, but I ended up being an honor grad and all that. And I'm like, where did this come from? And it just, that kind of followed me in life. I didn't, you know, whether it be, I learned how to be the quiet professional later on in SF. You know, that wasn't there in high school and those couple years in college. I'm like, wow, okay, this, you know, maybe this whole military thing is going to be, because I didn't have any, you know, long term goals. Well, at Fort Bragg, you know, quite a few deployments, great training, jumping out of planes. Um, like the, when I talk about the follower versus leader and, and developing that kind of stuff, you know, as far as making rank, initially that wasn't important to me. But doing some of the other performance-based stuff, like going to jump master school, going to sapper leader school, you know, you give me an opportunity to do something like that, bam, let's, let's do it. I, I say a lot that I was just too dumb to quit volunteering a lot of times. And it was like, and I, a lot of times I didn't see how that will, you know, obviously you're developing leadership. Um, I didn't also just, you know, hey, that's another school or check the block or another tab. I was never like that. And then, you know, some people started to look at that. And then, of course, that did coincide with making rank corporal and uh, sergeant. And um, 89, 90, I started noticing these guys across the street because that's a place called Smoke Bomb Hill. And right across the street were the old uh, barracks and, uh, there were still some of the units from the Special Forces guys over there. And, of course, there was the Green Beret Club, which is famous uh, in that part of the uh, the military, uh, that part of the airborne world. But, you know, it wasn't so much the way they Green Beret or, you know, anything they wore. Or did, it was just the way they carried themselves, uh, their, their togetherness, their brotherhood. And it just, but I didn't know a lot about it. So it's like, oh, there's a there's a different part to this, you know, being airborne. And then I did get to work with them uh, and train with them some out of Camp McCall and doing projects for them on the combat engineer side. Every once in a while, I might jump with them. I did become a rough terrain parachute instructor um, as a jump master, and they actually, some of them came to our training. So I'm like, yeah, I think I need to do that. And, uh, well, then the Gulf War popped up. I didn't get to put any paperwork in, went overseas, and uh, 1991, Saudi Arabia, Western Iraq. You know, it's it's kind of a blur now, um, 20 plus years later, but, uh, you know, not to uh, downplay it or dishonor it in any way. It was, it was combat. Uh, it was real. It was, um, you know, I felt like I'd been trained for everything. And uh, later on when we, you know, talk more about the, you know, the wellness, the PTSD, the medical retirement, I'd have to say that there was also the first incident there as well. And it's one that's not talked about a lot. Uh, seven engineers in my platoon and company lost their lives in a mine-clearing accident uh, at a remote airfield in western Iraq. And it's it was just at the end of the, like, they use the 100-hour mark benchmark for, you know, the uh, length of the Gulf War. So we picked up, we, we grieved a little bit there, we, you know, um, cleaned up and moved on. And then all of a sudden the war's over and we've moved back to uh, Saudi Arabia not long after that, you know, a couple months later, going back to the States and then doing everything we do to, you know, honor brothers, pay respects and memorialize and on and on and on. And then 
real quick, and this is important, right back into, you know, training, normal operations, stuff like that. So that's very important later on. I got to put in paperwork in uh, the spring of 91 for selection. Went to selection. Uh, it was actually a year that uh, not many people remember. Uh, they had some heat casualty deaths out of Camp McCall, so they didn't run selection that year. The, the Gulf War may have had something to do with that, uh, too, time, timeliness and numbers. And um, so I went in September of that year, 91. Again, I just was like, it's kind of funny because I don't never give myself enough credit. I was always like a, a, a long-distance runner, and I, I did a lot of rucking that, that summer, but I was always fearful of my upper body stuff, push-ups, pull-ups, stuff like that. The obstacle course, the nasty Nick crushed me. And then I felt like I had to make up everything I did in selection. And of course, you know, they never tell you anything, take all your instructions from the whiteboard, you know, do the best you can. And I'm like, oh, and then you had gates to make it through in the 21 days, you know, at like 10 days, 14 days. And I, I just, I thought I had messed everything up, like in the first couple of days of selection. I ended up passing. Uh, I got 18 Charlie uh, engineer, which I guess they looked at my MOS. And I started the Q course and um, the November, December 91, graduated in 92, language school that summer, and then reported to Port Campbell in December of uh, 1992 at uh, the fifth group. It was kind of funny. I don't know if I formally told anyone, like, you know, a recruiter or someone at JFK at the schoolhouse, but I'm like, after the Gulf War, like, I never want to go back to the desert. And then I get assigned to fifth group. So it ended up being a you know, a, a reward, and I'm very grateful, uh, very fortunate, because, uh, you know, throughout the 90s and, um, you know, 9-11, a lot of people will say, I, I don't, after learning more about other groups, you know, I don't know if I'm going to say it publicly, but, you know, a lot of people consider fifth group uh, the premier group. So, uh, the 90s were, um, were interesting. Um, a lot of training, a lot of foreign internal defense overseas, uh, a few contingency operations, but I was gone a lot. And, um, you know, so check that one for later too, because uh, I had gotten married in 1989, and um, it was more of a, you know, a friend of my combat engineer platoon had his sister down. You know, and a couple months later, I'm, I'm married to a girl that had come down to visit from Ohio and going like, okay, well, this must be part of, you know, the military life. Everyone gets married once in a while. But I never crossed that line to say, okay, well, I have a family. Let's balance that out. It was like, no. And especially after going SF, you know, if I wasn't already mili- married to the military and the airborne after SF, you know, it's like, man, this is, I love this stuff, but this is game on. And I just wanted to be deployed because it felt like, you know, we did a lot of great training, you know, stateside, but when you're gone, uh, and to me that was in the 90s, Jordan, um, Africa, Kuwait, a um, few of the other countries, and, um, you know, that's when we're doing our job. That's when we're truly, you know, what I felt we're, we're getting paid for. And uh, I also came to the realization of why I joined. Maybe I thought early on, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was going to get back out, use the college fund, finish school, but that was somebody else's. That was maybe my mom or someone else's dream or goal. You know, I knew that I wanted to stay in and I was serving for God and country uh, to go over and pr- 
protect the uh, people here that can't defend their democracy. That's what we were supposed to do, so that was important to me. The uh, the deployments um, started to weigh on that relate the marriage, that relationship, but I didn't see it that way. It was all about me, you know, and I just continued to, um, uh, you know, drive forward, volunteer for everything I could, schools, whatever, sniper, work on my explosive breaching, CQB later in the later in the 90s, but also some of that stuff uh, from maybe the Gulf War or the work hard, play hard, drinking too much off the job started to catch up with me in the mid to late 90s. Um, and in fact, I got a, uh, a DUI on post uh, in 1995, more towards the midpoint, but, um, or I should say 94, and that was a critical um juncture in the United States Army, because before that, you know, it was um, said maybe behind the scenes that like Vietnam era people, especially senior ranking E8, E9, sergeant majors, you know, to make rank back in the day, you know, they probably had to have a couple DUIs on their record. Well, the Army was changing, whether it was the, you know, political correctness that a lot of people talk about, or that they just, you know, wanted to shine some new uh, beacons in the, you know, uh, the hierarchy of the Army leadership. So I ended up getting QMP, which is, you know, they were going to kick me out. And I had to fight for my life. I had made Staff Sergeant. And, um, I mean, I'm so fortunate that a couple years I was able to make a, you know, a, a pretty good, decent um, reputation in, in fish group. I was in 3rd Battalion, 5th. Started out in Bravo Company. And some people fought for me, my team leaders, my leadership, and I uh, can remember battalion commanders, everybody, sergeant majors, and and I'm like, but I also started to think, man, there's something wrong with me. I mean, I, I shouldn't have done that. How did that happen? Um, just couldn't put that together, though, in my, you know, I had a good mindset for work. Um, I had a questionable mindset, you know, outside the job. I couldn't, couldn't balance that. So I ended up getting... I got a general letter of reprimand. It's kind of funny from General Jack Keane. You see him all the time on uh, Fox News. He's the 101st commander, and I blamed him. It wasn't his fault. It was mine. And um, I eventually got that removed and uh, was able to get promoted to, uh, to E7 um, in 99. And I um, was looking for something a little different. In fact, I was afraid to go to other areas in the Army which some might consider a step above special forces, a special mission units, because I felt at that point I had clouded my career and I could never make that up if I had to go sit someone and talk to a uh, psychologist or take a polygraph. I had tarnished my you know, record and there was no way to make that up. So, but, you know, what I originally came into special forces for, I told the initial recruiter in like 1990 or 91, I said, he says, what do you want to do? And he kind of caught me cold, but I did know what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to SF, stay on the enlisted side, and make team sergeant, um, and take a team into combat. And that eventually turned out that way, but, you know, that portion in the 90s, I probably wouldn't have, eh, this isn't going to work out so well. Um, we pushed through, um, and this is important too later on, because, you know, I had been taught, SEER school, you know, ranger school, you name it, I had been pushed or felt always trained to never surrender, never give up, 
and keep pushing through, i.e. trying to push through the wall rather than go around it, finesse it somehow, dig under it. Uh, and that would eventually catch up. Uh, in 99, I got asked to uh, interview for a, um, a special projects job in Fish Group. Uh, we had a couple of detachments that did different things, and um, uh, I really didn't know much about them at the time, but I ended up doing that for three years, just before, during, and uh, right after 9-11. And it was really, really interesting stuff, working on special access programs, um, working with people all over the United States, um, but especially along the East Coast and trying to get the, the best ideas and the best technology into equipment and out into the hands of operators um, in special operations, um, military special operations, just not Army. 9-11 uh, went down, and um, I was still working that job. They were trying to you know, get us back into the uh, normal rotation because we really weren't on the... Um, a table of organization as a normal team. So when Afghanistan went down, you know, uh, we stayed behind and we tried to do our part, you know, whether it be help with uh, tracking stuff in Afghanistan or just helping with equipment, doing whatever, whatever we could, getting it to the teams on the um, downrange in Afghanistan. And I just, it, it, that was hard. That was really hard later on. It's like, this is what, you know, we had trained for. This is, you know, the premier, someone came in and attacked the United States, and here I am sitting back at Fort Campbell. And uh, I kind of been t I started to internalize that a little too much at the time. But, it, you know, again, it's not about me. It's about those guys doing good stuff downrange. And it started to hit hard, too, when some of the casualties were taken. And the first, uh, those three guys, uh, Dan, J.D., and Cody, uh, in December of uh, 2001, because I knew Dan really, really well. And I was one of the first to find out when the casualty assistance notes started going around. And it's just like, I mean, I just was like, how can I be standing here when this is happening? And anyway, into 2002 and 2003, we knew we were going to uh, be going into uh, into Iraq. So actually, we got a, We were back there. We got a start. And we started planning with the Marines and General Mattis um, in the mid-'02 uh, and um fall of O2, and then we would deploy over there with uh, pretty much the whole fifth group uh, in January of 2003 to get ready for the push into uh, Iraq and to Baghdad. And um, so, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, I was a uh, E7 at the time. I was an, uh, the Intel guy uh, or a, uh, you know, Breacher Charlie, uh, 18 Charlie, uh, engineer sergeant uh, Intel and uh, dedicated sniper to the team pushing into Iraq. Um, and in fact, I switched. I was in Charlie Company, 3rd Battalion at the time. And um, so we get over there, and it was just a, you know, it was like a going to the All-Star game. And I don't mean me. It was just like, man, everybody is over here. Uh, this is my, you know, what it was like for the guys on the ground in, in Afghanistan. I mean, everyone's here. We seem to be planning well. You know, I don't, care who work with conventional forces. I love working for the Marines. Let's just go take care of this because, you know, there was some animosity with some of the military. Uh, some of the people that have been involved in the Gulf War had a contingency operation in 98, um, search and rescue in southern Iraq, northern Kuwait. So it's like, let's get this finished if we're going to do it. So um, we push into uh, Baghdad with General Madison and 1st Marine Division. And, um, 
I mean, it was for me this time. I, I can't speak for any of the guys' experience in Afghanistan. I mean, they, they've all, a lot of them have talked to me, but you know, it was truly game on, and uh, it was it was pretty intense. Um, there was a couple in April, uh, March and April that you know have really never uh, made the news. It was kind of funny because we had you know Oliver North following us around. He was. Um, documenting uh, from his side. I can't remember if he was on his own or with Fox News, documenting what the Marines were doing. So um, every step of the way, he was there with his, his crew. And um, it was, you know, it was just, I guess that was what, you know, war at a fast pace in the modern world, you know, with reporters. And a lot of times it was just a hodge. It wasn't just special forces. It was a hodgepodge of special operations guys. Um, but I will say that General Mattis is real. And, you know, standing beside him on the battlefield was absolutely phenomenal. And seeing some of the decisions that he made at uh, key points uh, along the route into Baghdad were absolutely phenomenal. I have never seen... You know, I don't think before that I had seen a battle or been standing beside or had advised a battlefield commander at that level. But he did a phenomenal job and saved a lot of lives on the Marine Corps side. Going into uh, the rest of 03, um, I had uh, remarried after a divorce in uh, 98 to my first wife. I had remarried a high school sweetheart or a post-high school sweetheart and um, in 99. And... Um, she found out she was pregnant just as I was getting on the plane in January of 03. And um, she was due in August. So, uh, I, and I was kind of torn about that. It was, it was very, after all the intense stuff, uh, especially in April over there, pushing into the north central side of Baghdad with the Marines, uh, intense street fighting. Um, it was, I was like, you know, should I come back? Should I stay with the team? People are getting to go back. You know, some people left right after, you know, May 1st when the president and others said that, you know, Baghdad's secure. And, you know, some guys went back for training schools that whole summer. And, you know, do we stay? Do we go? And uh, I eventually got to come back. Um, but I felt, it just felt a little odd. Um, but, uh, you know, later on, people said it was the right thing to do. You know, you, you chance you see your firstborn, especially your firstborn son, you know, go do it. I uh, came back and um, found out that I was going to get promoted and um, moved back to the uh, military freefall team that I was in in Bravo Company, 3rd Battalion, and um, would eventually became their intel sergeant. And then I found out I was going to get promoted, ended up being coming the team sergeant of that team in 2004. And taking that team for uh, two years, um, back into uh, central and eastern Iraq. And uh, 2004, uh, that was one rotation, and then 05 into 06 was another rotation. And, um, you know, some of the things that I've pointed out um, in either in combat or on the personal side really started to catch up with me. Uh, and when I came back in 2006, I was a mess. And, uh, you know, it's so many ways to put it. I felt like I was in a fog. I didn't know which way was up. You know, some of the textbook PTSD stuff, you know, felt just socially as an outcast or awkward in any social situation. A lot of veterans use the Walmart checkout line. And um, I, uh, but I, one of my things that I had brought 
you know, from the 90s or as an early, or as an early soldier or maybe even from college is my go-to pain relief uh, was drinking, was alcohol. Uh, and if I wasn't before, I had become a full-blown alcoholic and um, that was my go-to. And, uh, you know, I thought I could continue to hide it. I couldn't. Um, and then, you know, somewhere between 2006 and my medical retirement, in 2000, April of 2008, I also started to self-medicate with prescription drugs. Uh, at that time, they were um, issued by doctors uh, and or the, well, a year after medical retirement, uh, the VA. But, you know, I blame myself. Uh, it was me that chose to, you know, keep abusing them. Um, and then things really, really got dark. So, um but as a good soldier and that guy that kept pushing through the, the wall I described earlier, um, I would get right out, say, hey, what can I do? Uh, I need to do something and, you know, let's do some training. Um, thankfully, I didn't try to go back overseas and contract, but a friend of mine started a training business uh, for the armed citizen, um, law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement. And we started to train people in the central U.S. and um, the, uh, the East Coast. And, um, you know, had a great time, met some great contacts, had great classes. But, you know, the whole time I was not getting any better. Actually, I was going further downhill. Personal life was in complete mess. And, uh, you know, at that point I would try to hide the drinking and the prescription drugs and... Um, you know, I just disappear for a couple of days, go on a bender and then show back up and, you know, go somewhere and teach a class. And, and it, that was really, it was, it didn't have to catch up. It was part of my life and people could tell. And I, and I just continued to, you know, draw all that inside, isolate. And, um, you know, another DUI. And, um, but it, and this is where it got really, you know, fuzzy and foggy, I say now, I know why now, but I couldn't see it for myself. I had to keep going. I had to keep pushing forward. I had to keep dodging the, you know, the little hurdles and stuff like that. I just wouldn't stop. I had to keep going. I had to keep pushing forward. So, you know, there's a nine or 10 year, um, you know, I'll, I'll shorten it up from here and, and um, we can talk about it, but you know, obviously that's uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, I moved around the um, United States uh, from the Fort Campbell, Nashville area to Atlanta, Georgia, to San Antonio, Texas, and then back to where I'd never said I would end up because my second wife and my son moved back to East Liverpool, Ohio, uh, across the river from where I grew up. Something inside me, because I grew up without a father, said I needed to get my butt back up to that area, and um, with whatever you know, emotional, mental state or mindset I had left, I had to be in the general area and be a father to my son. And that's when the getting, so in 2012, that's when the, um, you know, push to, to get better. I was still in a bad way. I had a long way to go, a long road to get better. But at least I positioned myself geographically um, in the uh, upper Ohio Valley, uh, just west of Pittsburgh, um, to, uh, to get better. And it was long and hard and brutal and horrible, uh, but, you know, four or five years later, um, 
I started to swim out of it uh, through the VA, through some off-site doctors, and uh, it's all worth it uh, because, you know, coming through that, coming through the darkness, you know, not just thinking but wanting to uh, act on, you know, suicidal thoughts, uh, the drinking binges, the, you know, the pills, uh, the dark places, the, you know, wanting to act out like an outlaw, all of that. I mean, yeah, you survived, yeah, you feel, you know, bad. You have to go back and be accountable. You know, I mean, I, I still work and I'm part of recovery plans for alcoholism, uh, addiction. So what am I going to do later on, which is where I'm at today? How can you turn that around? Talk about all of that darkness and then say, hey, I'm going to go out and teach someone firearms, which is where I'm at and what I'm doing today with my wife's small business, OSS2 Shooting and Survival LLC, um, and have them trust you, you know, and have them depend on you and, you know, want to put you on a schedule and pay you to come and, you know, and know that you're going to show up and do a good job. Um, I just tell them, look, and a lot of people know this story. Um, if I'm working with police, uh, most of them know, or I say, hey, it's just simple. Do a background check and you'll find something and ask me about it and we'll talk about it. But, uh, and then, of course, I say, well, can I talk about wellness to you after we get done training? Uh, because this is rampant everywhere. And um, so I, I kind of use it uh, at times, sometimes regardless of whether we're doing training or, or anything with a firearm. I just, you know, ask someone, you know, how they're doing mentally, emotionally, um, uh, even if it doesn't, you know, if we share nothing in common. Um, and especially now, uh, after we've gone through the last couple of months with the virus, and I said, I think the second and third order effects from this, um, just not on the physical side, are going to be with us for a long time. It could be generational uh, with mental and emotional health. So it's, it's very close to my heart, um, and I kind of use this as a, you know, my backstory is a platform um, to, to get in and informally help people. Uh, I still work. I consider the, you know, the training, the firearms, the tactical work, the consulting, uh, any of that still strictly part-time because I feel like I owe it to my family. I am remarried. And uh, my son, my biological son, who was a sophomore in high school, he'll be a junior. I feel like I owe it to him to not to always be there for anything that he needs in his high school years, which, you know, that's completely different for me. You know, back in the 90s and around 9-11, it was all about me going down range and doing the job. Well, J.D., first of all, I want to thank you for being so authentic. A story you've shared is obviously uh, the, the heights that you had in the military are fairly rare, um, but the struggles that you encountered and overcame are fairly common and you know we had talked uh when when we were talking about putting the show together we had talked about how many people are probably or definitely facing stress and uncertainty how many people rely on their routines to keep them balanced and now maybe their routine was their work or gym or you know they're without their routines and you know so we thought this was kind of a important 
topic to share and to touch on at this time. You know, one of the things you mentioned a number of times is uh, use the term, well, maybe I'm selling myself short. And um, I definitely think that the recovery process that you outlined, you're definitely selling yourself short on, uh, you know, just the same way many guys come into selection and few make it. You know, many people think about recovery and few make it to the level you've made it to where you are well, which I know is a daily fight, balanced, and, you know, you're service in the military, but you're still serving. You're serving as a uh, mentor and, um, and, and you know, you mentioned a firearms instructor. And, um, you know, can you tell me just a little bit more about uh, what you're doing now in terms of teaching, training, and mentoring other people? Sure, and thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I took, uh, go back real quick to, um, that point of the, uh, selling myself short. This is going to sound, you know, maybe a little arrogant, uh, crazy. We all are a little crazy for doing some of this stuff, but the, I took the physical side for granted. Like I said, I never was the strongest, but you give me, um, you know, endurance events and especially wrecking or running, you know, I was... I was your guy, and I took that for granted, the physical side. Um, it, at some point, it just, God-given gifts or the Army made me better. Um, but really, I was taking the mental and emotional um, uh, part. And I also, you know, as I started to get better, um, and uh, or thinking I had a problem and I had to do something, but I didn't. And uh, late in the first decade, I realized that we didn't have any training. Now, that sounds like I'm blaming, but I'm not. You know, I had been trained. I felt like every time in combat, uh, like Shane talks about with PSS, the the pre-fight, the fight, and the post-fight. It's like, ooh, you know. And, And for me, it was just work hard, play hard. So I'd get, you know, go blow off steam the only way I knew how. Um, and I, so I was really taking the mental and emotional part, the mindset part that we talk about in, in training and tactical stuff. So today, uh, every day, that's what I try to, to work on the most. And I always think about what I learned in survival. I didn't go to SEER school until 98. It wasn't part of the Q course back at that time. And I yearned, I always felt that that was something I absolutely you know, had to do before I got into uh, long sustained combat, especially if it was in semi permissive or behind enemy lines. And, um, you know, the, the quick equation in there, I think it's, you know, 85, 15, you know, I, I'd say probably 90, 95% mental, you know, the other small percentage is physical. And I still believe that today. So, you know, um, I train, uh, I, I kind of put myself out there, uh, promote and, uh, and, and market, but it's more word of mouth in this local area through some great friends. Um, you know, I work with, uh, Shane and his company out of, uh, Clarksville and, and Nashville in the Fort Campbell area and got to teach long range precision shooting for Barrett last year. And also, you know, found that, um, you know, going back to my son being in high school, I kind of really liked being more regional and being more local. So, and also that I believe that that helps to build 
you know, your surrounding community. So uh, about a year, year and a half ago, I started donating or offering my time to local depart- police departments, uh, specialized teams, SWAT teams, drug task force, and uh, some of those have, have worked out. Some of them are even for pay. But if I can help those guys with the skill sets that you know, I feel I was so freely given um, to help them in their law enforcement job, you know, that's just a win-win. And it also, for now, as, you know, if you want to call it, yes, maybe I'm donating my time, but it's work to me. It's also therapy for me. And at first, people were, you know, if I tell the VA doc, hey, I'm going to go out and teach for a week and shoot a lot. I don't think they're going to buy into that. Obviously, people that are close to me, they know exactly what's going on, and they know that it is, in fact, therapy. But it's not. It's just, you know, not therapy in a sense of, you know, sitting down. It gives me um, task and purpose. It gives me purpose, connection, direction, which in 2007, 2008, I was searching, but I couldn't put my finger out and say, what am I missing when I walked off work? Campbell and was such a mess, you know, with my medical retirement. Well, it was that purpose and connection. So, you know, whether I'm getting paid for it today or not, it's important to me. I believe it's helping the community. Um, I've worked with some great uh, small businesses around here, uh, CNG Holsters, CNG Arms uh, in Pittsburgh, a great holster company. Um, they also do training. We help a couple departments in the Pittsburgh area. And then I just started at a uh, uh, indoor range in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, Defense in Depth, uh, and they wanted to take their uh, firearms academy, their training academy, the firearms portion, a little further from the basic classes and do some intermediate and more advanced stuff. And that's where Shane has a great program. And, uh, you know, knowing him so well, working with him in the Army, and then knowing what such a great trainer he is, I said, hey, you know, you've already put this down in paper. You basically have a progressive program, you know, a level program that makes people want to come back. How about if I take that to another part of the country? And then, you know, we're basically, to me, it all comes from, you know, back to the, the history of Special Forces and uh, the OSS and post-World War II firearms and training. Um, you know, don't feel like it's anything that I have. Uh, I can't speak for Shane, but it's about the process. Uh, and it's been going on. This this sort of handgun or, uh, you know, rifle training's been going on for a long time. I'm just the conduit. But it's important that I feel that in this day of, you know, sometimes sexy training or entertainment training, that we have a consistent um, program, you know, if, if not nationally, at least regionally. And that's what I tried to do with Shane um, and bring his program up to uh, Defense in Depth in Morgantown. Uh, we had a, a pretty good schedule for this year. Obviously, it's been interrupted, but hey, um, we're dealing with it, and it's given me time to go back and work on myself, probably at my age, more physically, but I always take the time because I'm grounded in that mental, emotional, and just listen to your body, see where you're at, you know, get back in some good books, um, some meditation, yoga, you know, us tough guys, all the stuff that I made fun about, you know, uh, even now, you know, our dark humor or tough guy humor, and that tough guy is always relative, but, you know, it really, really helps, and I try to always talk about that, um, especially with the, you know, the big action guys. It's like, guys, this stuff works. The, the nutrition, 
right now is big. All the stuff that, you know, we drink water, gluten-free, you know, dairy-free, any of that stuff. If I follow all that, it helps me feel better. But on the mental and emotional side, it's key right now. But of course, start talking about that in a tactical class and see how that works out. So, you know, that's kind of a give and take. I offer that when I can. But uh, so these last two months have really had the time to sit down, sit down with some great people like you, Shane and some others, um, look at the curriculum, look at the programs, look at myself, and just refine that, um, either to be able to present it better um, or to pass it along um, to someone that may need it, especially on the, uh, the wellness side. You hit on a couple really, really important points and some of them we had talked about before and some of them you brought up in this conversation but you know obviously i think anybody that hears your story you know and just the group you've come from uh, you know would would characterize uh, anybody who's come through that path as as an alpha male and you know we had talked about the maybe the double-edged sword of of the uh that alpha drive you know that drive that uh allows you to push through where others would quit and allows you to achieve things that others cannot. If you don't temper that or you lose your self-awareness when you start coming off course, let's say, or you have some gaps um, in, um, as you were saying, your pre-fight, post-fight, um, you know, they can really uh, just as, as as much as it can drive you high, it can also pull you into some dark places. And I think, um, you know, again, that's that's an important point on balance. And you hit on another point on, on purpose, you know, on when you, you know, kind of go from where you have a, a strong sense of purpose and drive every day and, you know, overall you know, guiding your, your thoughts and your actions and, you know, uh, everything's taking you in some direction and you, uh, you know, either through transition or, you know, changes, uh, that were unanticipated or, or even if they were anticipated, you know, we see it a lot with, um, guys that come out of teams or come out of law enforcement, for instance, and they kind of, have a period of time that they have to either figure out how to redefine themselves or if they don't, you know, life gets very sketchy for them. And so, you know, it sounds a little bit like, you know, your son gave you a lot of purpose. But what I'm also hearing is that your sense of service to your community and what you're doing now has given you a lot of purpose as well. I mean, not a lot of people in this day and age want to do something that helps others that they're not getting paid for all the time. So I think that speaks one very highly to you, but uh, I think it also speaks to the value of doing something that's purposeful and the impact it can have on your, you know, when you get out of yourself and you think about service, that's a, a very good stepping stone into becoming resilient, you know, resilience. I want to keep this about you, but, um, resilience to me, uh, the times I've been going the wrong direction and, or, uh, been in some dark places, it's been when I could, you know, one, get outside of my head into my body and, or get outside of myself into a bigger picture, bigger cause, be of use to somebody else that's really helped take me to the next level. 
No, absolutely. You're spot on, and it sounds like you're almost quoting. Um, keep using uh, resilience and examples of Brene Brown, and she's been in you know, a doctor's and uh, never met her, um, never heard her speak other than following her on a podcast or a, a TED Talk or something like that. But her books have um, really helped me, um, you know, in the uh, mental and emotional. Um, and she does target military and law enforcement and, you know, the tough guys uh, that keep thinking they can keep going and going and going. But um, she talks about vulnerability and resilience. And uh, two other things I thought of this, this morning, and in fact, it was in our recovery reading, is humility and responsibility. So you're talking about that, you know, my purpose, that service to, you know, the locals, um, the local area around, around me. Um, I, I grew, I can remember, like I told you the other day, I've gone back and I've, um, I've, I've basically done a history of myself to, to one, put it in better perspective to help me to continue to feel okay because um, gathering shame, you know, guilt and shame, whether it be survivor's guilt, battlefield, family, um, those are two very big things can't speak for others, but when you get sick, they're misunderstood. You know, guilt is, uh, I did something bad. I can recover. I'm not a bad person. Shame is, oh, um, something happened. I was part of it and I am truly a bad person. And that's probably not true. Um, so, you know, all the tools that I've, um, and it just made me think of, uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, I remember when the therapist first gave me one of her books, I'm like, yeah, like I'm going to read this and I'm going to follow some of these practices. And then, you know, six years later, you know, here I sit, you know, quoting it uh, in a podcast interview. But it's in, and then again, I go to quote it in a class or with somebody on a SWAT team or if, if nothing else, it's just planting that seed. But you'd be surprised with some of the, of what you said and some of the, you know, the points of the reference, references where, officers or agents or soldiers have come right back and said, yes, I've heard of that, or I did get some training on that. I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I have a problem, but it, maybe the seed was planted, and that's important. I also appreciate you um, saying that about my son because, yes, it, in 2011, 2012, at my lowest point, um, I think I had one other in 2015 during a uh, PTSD treatment program, uh, one of the final ones that really I started to turn the corner. I used my son as the, um, you know, my wife, uh, his mom, my ex, and my current wife have been huge and instrumental in uh, the recovery and the progression. But at my lowest point, I just said, you know, as bad as it is, as bad as I, I think I am, or I know I am, I, I just can't end it if suicide was on the, you know, was in the thought process, drink my stuff to death, um, overdose. I just can't do that to my son. So he was definitely motivation. I appreciate, really appreciate you um, picking that out. And um, yeah, humility and responsibility today. That is, I try to keep grounded in that. And sometimes that's hard for, like you said, those alpha males. Um, it has been hard for me in the past. The quiet professional for Army Special Forces was ingrained in me. And, um, you know, one thing I, I don't, um, that's, I think overlooked in these, uh, the symptoms of these conditions is the, um, the pity party and the poor me, uh, and the self-loathing. Um, and you know, that was never me. And I, 
I turned that around. I was so sick at one point, about 12, 13 years ago, that I turned around and I would purposely cry on people's shoulders and say, look, I've done all this and I've been this guy and I went downrange and did this for you. You've got to help me. And they would look at me like, what is going on with you? Where did this come from? And I, I mean, that's how sick I was. And that was never part of my behavior or my personality. And, uh, and on top of I mean, my mentors, both in the combat engineers and early SF were Vietnam guys. And I mean, they preached to us about being a quiet professional. But there were times when I would, you know, stand on my high horse and say, look what I've done for you. You've got to help. And it was, I was just sick. You know, I wasn't, I probably on the surface looked like a bad person, but I was just very, very sick. So, um, yeah, I, I, each morning I try to do something that, you know, grounds me in, uh, whether it's a meditation or reading, um, most times it's on the recovery side, but there are times when I read stuff from you, Shane, other trainers, and they're always talking about mindset, you know, ways of the warrior spirit, uh, and it grounds me for the day, um, hopefully points me in the right direction, and then I start on the physical side, so, um, no, those are great points, thank you. You know, we had talked about this on the phone the other day, but I just kind of want to make sure that we get it into this conversation. Um, when you look back at, let's say, who you were in the peak of the teams and who you are now after having gone down this path, do you feel that you are stronger now or how do you compare or come to terms with the, the transition? Uh, much stronger mentally and emotionally and more durable. Uh, I can remember a couple of people speaking out over the years. Um, one of them, Joe, he was a fellow free fall guy from another company. And, um, and then he went to a warrant officer. I can remember him one time overseas, I think, uh, after nine 11 in Iraq, since, you know, you take things too personal. And I'm like, well, this is combat. You know, you may lose someone, you know, killing someone definitely isn't, you know, um, fun, but it is part of combat. But I said, yeah, I, I take this. Well, like you mentioned, double-edged sword or, you know, the catch 22, um, that, that, uh, that can go both ways. And, um, I just, uh, yeah, be able to, um, well, the, the take things personal, I, I still felt that that was necessary at times in the, um, you know, in the military, especially in combat, but able, so today so much stronger mentally, emotionally, you know, my physical strength is relative to my, I believe, age. I go more for longevity today, but it is so much more worth it on problem-solving, decision-making, compassion, empathy today, and being able to let the, the past, good, bad, or indifferent, roll off of me. Be able to go to bed each night, get a good night's sleep, not worry about that stuff, wake up with, you know, might get hit with an emergency, a catastrophe the next morning and be able to be calm, work through it. That is, so compared to, yes, um, 12 years ago, um, you know, work with some great people. So I want to, don't want to, you know, downplay that by saying, yes, I'm so much better today. Anything we did, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, you know, wasn't that good. That's so keep it in perspective, but yes, it's so much. And, and that is, you're absolutely right. That's, that's really hard to say when someone says, Hey, I want to do this. How can I do this? And you're like, well, you know, if you're drinking or if you're you know, taking a lot of pills or you're in a bad relationship or you're here, you know, you might want to do this, this, and this, 
And then once that evens out for a couple months, I'm going to tell you for me, that's when it got really hard. And then someone's going to look at you and go, Ooh, wait, it already feels really bad now. And you're telling me, you know, three to six months from now, it's going to be harder. Now I'm like, brother or sister, stick with me because it is, you know, and that's when I say, look, for me, I use my son and or the fact that I just don't, you know, really just don't want to die. So, you know, find a motivation, find a goal, sift through the wreckage, sift through the darkness and find a purpose. And I said, look, I'm hard headed. I'm slow, whether it's the West Virginian in me, but you know, it, maybe it took me extra time. Maybe it won't take you two, three, four years, but it takes a while. You know, on the alcohol side, all that science stuff is horrible. And I'll even say my, you know, my, my go-to prescription drug were the benzos, um, Xanax. And sometimes depending on who the other person is. So, you know, we're all anxious, we're stressful, and that's an anti-anxiety drug. It's like, do, do some research on the science of that. Find out what a dirty, um, rotten pharmaceutical that is. And I'm not talking about the corporate side of it, the money and the power. I'm just talking the way they manufacture that. It is a very unhealthy pharmaceutical. So, you know, it takes a while for that to come out of your system. And... I would have never said that. I just said, ah, I'm tough. Once I put it down, once I stop drinking, a couple months, I'm going to feel better. Brother, it took, it took a long time. Um, so then when I tell them, you know, 2013, 2014, you know, that stuff getting out of my system nine months, a year, well, then I had all this pent-up anger. And it's like, well, I don't have any more court cases, no divorces, no bankruptcies, none of this. Those are almost, a lot of the consequences are taken care of. Why am I such a, an angry, pissed off person? Well, most of it was misplaced. Then the hard work started. And it's doable. Like I said, I, I, I tell people straight up, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I said, I am extremely slow and hard-headed. So if I can do it, you can do it. You have a chance. Just don't give up. Absolutely. And I remember that from the conversations we've had on this topic, the just don't ever give up. And I think this might be a good place for us to end this topic, J.D. And, okay. um, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that we would love to have you on the show, uh, on the podcast, back again, if you are willing to talk about training and a whole bunch of other topics that you're very knowledgeable on. But I wanted to hit this topic because, as you said at the beginning, of what's been going on in our country and the situation that many people are finding themselves in, you know, a lot of times to overcome something, you sometimes can benefit from knowing that somebody else has overcome something that you're going through or similar to what you're going through, even though it might not be the same situation for somebody else who's listening to this, you know, to the degree and intensity of what you've had to overcome, knowing that uh, you could overcome what you've been through and come out stronger on the other side, definitely give some people that listen to us some ways to repurpose themselves, manage perspective and the stress that they're feeling and the uncertainty they're feeling. So we are very grateful for you to share your story with us. And before I end, I want to make sure that if people want to contact you, uh, that they have a way to do that. Um, you had mentioned OSS2 Shooting and Survival. Um, is there uh, an email or a website they can go to to reach out to you? Sure. No website. 
at this time, but uh, just go to my personal email, um, jedjd07 at gmail, um, jedjd07 at gmail.com, or they can find me on Facebook, uh, J.D. Morris, um, and then just message me. That's great, J.D. Thanks so much for being here with us today. And we look forward to, this was a dark and heavy topic and, uh, you know, we appreciate it. And we look forward to talking with you about a whole bunch of other stuff in the future, as long as you're willing to. Oh, thanks so much, brother. It's been an honor. And uh, I really, really um, admire what you guys do. Thank you. Thanks for your service, J.D. We'll talk soon.